Well, growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was this brand of cameras that used the slogan, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. But here in the year 2022, with the rise of social media and Photoshop and deep fakes and fake news, uh, we've basically made that saying obsolete. Right? Uh, we have come to learn that our seeing can be manipulated. What is so obviously apparent is not always obviously true. No wonder then that we live in a culture that is increasingly marked by suspicion, by doubt, by cynicism. We live in a culture that is increasingly fact-checking one another. And if you don't like what your fact-checkers say, you can find other fact-checkers to fact-check your fact-checkers. We live in a world full of suspicion, a world where we no longer are sure whether we can believe what our eyes see. And in such a world, is there anyone who sees things rightly, who sees things as they are? Is there anyone who can see us past our manicured appearances down to our hearts? Is there anyone who, whom we can trust to bring us peace amid our restlessness? The answer is found in our passage this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, found on page 238 in the Blue Pew Bibles. Uh, we are continuing our series through this ancient text that tells the story of how ancient Israel's greatest king came to the throne. Up to this point, Saul has been the king of Israel. The people had demanded a king like the nations, even though God was their king. And so God provided them just the king that they wanted, someone who was tall and handsome and strong. And yet, as we saw last time, this king, Saul, proved to be an utter failure as a king because he was unfaithful to God. He rebelled against God's commands. He decided to rule according to his own pride and greed. And through the prophet Samuel, God declared his rejection of Saul. Well, we pick up the story then in chapter 16. And in this chapter, we're going to see that God's plan will move forward. Uh, we're also going to see this dramatic contrast between God and Samuel, between God's king and the people's king, Saul. And really, in all these contrasts, what we're seeing is a contrast between God and us how different God is from us. We are those who make all kinds of wrong judgments based on appearances. But even then, God is committed to bringing us a king after his own heart. All right, so uh, let me start reading here in chapter 16, verse 1, but let me give you the first point of my outline. There it is. God has a plan, so we obey his commands. Point number one, God has a plan, so we obey his commands. Look with me, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Well, the chapter begins with Samuel mourning over Saul. Why was Samuel so brokenhearted about what was going on? Well, I'm sure there was a personal element to it. Uh, After all, Samuel had mentored Saul. Uh, Samuel had great hopes for Saul as his successor, the next leader of Israel. I have a feeling also that Samuel loved Saul. But now Saul has betrayed both God and his mentor. And even beyond any personal feelings, Samuel knows that this betrayal is a tragedy for Israel. If if God has rejected Saul, what could this mean for his people? How can Israel remain faithful under the leadership of an unfaithful king? Will God's purposes fail? But then in verse 1, we hear the voice of God. How long are you going to grieve over Saul? Stop wallowing in the past. I'm going to send you to Jesse from Bethlehem because I've provided for myself a king from his sons. The word there for provided uh, is literally the Hebrew word to see. I have seen for myself a son. In other words, even though Samuel is grieving God's rejection of Saul, God has moved on. God is not one bit phased by what has happened with Saul. In fact, this is all part of his plan. God has a better king in store for Israel, and he already sees the king that he has chosen. Samuel is afraid, of course. God told him to bring this horn of oil, which means that Samuel is going to be anointing a new king, declaring him to be God's chosen king. And of course, Saul is currently the king of Israel, so that is an act of treason. There can only be one king. But God tells Samuel to go ahead, go to Bethlehem, Say that you're going to offer a sacrifice. That, that's, that would not have been an unusual thing for Samuel to do as an itinerant priest and prophet. And during the feast of that sacrifice, God would show Samuel what to do. The future at this point looks unclear to Samuel, but not to God. God has a plan. And so we see in verse 4 that Samuel stops grieving and he moves out in obedience, in faith. I wonder if we have any people here this morning who are grieving, uh, who are mourning something in their past, dealing with some kind of disappointment from your life. You know, mourning or grieving is not a sin. Grieving, to grieve over a sad thing that's taken place, that's natural. That is a proper response to pain and disappointment in our lives. Jesus himself, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus when he had died. He cried out over Jerusalem's unbelief. If the Son of God grieved, then surely we too are allowed to grieve. But I think like Samuel, we can, in our weakness, become fixated on our past. 
We can allow ourselves to be so overwhelmed by what's taken place that we, we sort of become paralyzed in the present. Friend, if that's you, there is no better way out than to fix your hope on a God who has a plan. Yes, your past was horrible. Yes, you experienced real evil. Yes, you made some terrible choices. But even so, we serve a God who is sovereign over all things. Even though God hated Saul's rebellion, and even though Saul was fully responsible for his actions, God was still sovereign over what took place. And his sovereign purposes is such that even those terrible things of our past can become part of his good plans for our future. The tragedy of getting fixated on the past is that we end up missing out on what God has in store for us ahead. Now, at this point, to convince you of this, some preachers would tell you to keep believing and trusting in God and, you know, everything is going to work out well for you in the future, right? Uh, I could give some illustration, I'm sure, about how all of my failed romantic relationships eventually brought me to my lovely wife and I lived happily ever after. You know, that makes for good country music, but that's not actually what's promised in the Bible. In reality, whatever God has in store for you up ahead may end up being just as difficult as anything that you're facing now. As long as we live in this fallen world, God's plans for us will always have their own hardships. So if God hasn't promised us that all our dreams come true, that we live comfortably for the rest of our lives, then what has he promised? Well, he has promised to be with us, that he will never forsake us even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. He has promised that he has sent his spirit to dwell in us, John 16. He has promised that all things will work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. He has promised to use our suffering to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4. And he has promised to use our past sufferings to bring comfort to others as we experience his comfort, 2 Corinthians 1. In other words, God's plans for all of your past pain and regrets is to draw you and others to himself, to reveal to you his sufficiency for all your joy and all your happiness. So just as God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over your past? God says the same thing to you. It's time to move on. It's time to trust in me for the future. God has a plan for your ultimate good and for the good of his people and for his own glory. So we trust him. And like Samuel, we stop grieving and we move on. And as we see here, practically, the way we move on is that we move, we move on in obedience, in step-by-step obedience to what God calls us to do. Even when we can't see what he's doing. Like Samuel, it means moving out in obedience, doing those things that we know we're supposed to be doing. Going to church, serving our brothers and sisters, forgiving those who've hurt us, remaining in the word, seeking God in prayer. With the Apostle Paul, we say, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. Well, Samuel moves out in obedience. He goes to Bethlehem. And when he arrives, the people there are terrified. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent him and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Point number two, God sees our hearts, so we trust his choice. God sees our hearts, so we trust his choice. You know, the elders see Samuel coming, and they are, they are trembling, it says. Samuel has just had a public falling out with Saul. As the former leader of Israel, is Samuel going to try to take the leadership back? You know, is he coming to start a civil war? But when they see the heifer, they breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, no, Samuel is just coming to offer a sacrifice. No problem here. Samuel invites the elders of Bethlehem to the sacrifice. And, you know, with a sacrifice, that always includes a feast as the people partake of the sacrifice together. And Samuel invites Jesse and his sons along also. Now we get to verse 6. It seems that the sacrifice has been made. All the guests have been consecrated. And they're getting ready to sit down for the feast. And Samuel gets to meet Jesse's sons one by one. And of course, Jesse brings Eliab first. Eliab is the oldest son. He's the firstborn, the honored son. He's the heir of his father. And Samuel sees him, and he's impressed. Uh, Eliab is tall. He's handsome. He's impressive. And Samuel thinks, surely this is the next king. Here's the one uh, who is going to be the Lord's anointed. But then in verse 7, God speaks. And really, this statement here could function as a theme verse for all of 1 Samuel. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, we as finite, limited people, we are unable to see beyond outward appearances, uh, beyond someone's looks and height and abilities and actions. You know, there's, there's a lot for us to see, but at the end of the day, we can only see so far. We cannot see past what is visible. God alone sees the heart. What, what is the heart? Well, according to ancient Jewish thought, the, the heart is the core of who we are. It is the core from which all of our willing and doing and thinking and speaking flows. It is our essence. It is our nature. It is what makes you, you. As Jesus puts it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And yet as essential as the heart is to each one of us, we cannot see into the heart. We cannot see into other people's hearts. We can hardly see into our own hearts. All we can do is look on the outside. And as we've learned in the case of Saul, just because someone is outwardly impressive, that doesn't mean that any of that is coming from a good heart. So often, actually, outwardly impressive things are coming from a heart that ignore God, that are filled with pride and greed and fear and insecurity. Israel needed a better king than that. So when Samuel sees Eliab and thinks, ooh, this is the one, no, God, God says to him, Samuel, we've been down this path before. If you evaluate a king based on what he looks like on the outside, you're going to end up with another Saul. You pick Eliab, you're going to end up with another disaster. No, you need a better king. You need a king that only I can provide. Because I am the only one who can see down to the heart. You need a king after my own heart. And so from the oldest to the youngest, Jesse makes all of his sons pass by Samuel, Abinadab, nothing, Shema, nothing, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh sons, still nothing. God has not chosen any of these. The number seven there, I think, is, is significant. It's the number of fullness. You think this is it. These are all of them. I'm not sure what Jesse thought was happening at this point. Perhaps he was hoping for a blessing for his sons. Either way, he's probably disappointed to see all of his sons passed over. But Samuel knows that God doesn't make mistakes. So even after the seven, he says, are these all your boys? And Jesse says, oh, no, yeah, there is one more, actually. I've forgotten about him. Uh, he's out there watching the sheep. You get the sense that Jesse doesn't even offer to go and fetch him. He probably thought Samuel would say something like, oh, oh let's not bother him. If he's just watching the sheep, it, it couldn't have been him. But instead, Samuel says, no, we're not going to sit down until till you bring him. And so Jesse finds a servant, sends him out there. They have to probably go looking for him. It probably takes a few hours, I'm guessing. I'm, I'm sure Jesse is quite reluctant. Eventually, they find Dave, this little boy, this youngest son of Jesse. He comes in, shows up to the party, smelling like sheep, sunburned yet full of energy and life. And the Lord right away says to Samuel, that's the one. 
And so in front of all the villagers and all of his older brothers and his father, Samuel anoints this young sweaty boy with oil. We don't even know his name yet at this point. And yet this sweaty, smelly shepherd boy is God's chosen king. Had we been there that day with Samuel in the village of Bethlehem, we would have overlooked David also. Uh, We would have been talking with the village elders. We would have been impressed with Eliab and his feats of strength. That little shepherd boy would have just been there in the backdrop, way off in the distance. But God sees things differently. God sees every person down to their hearts. What stands out to God is not what stands out to us. What impresses God is not what we look like like on the outside. No, it's our hearts. It's a heart that fears and obeys God. A heart that loves and delights in God. A heart that longs to do good to others. A heart that is humble and self-forgetful, thankful, joyful. When God looks at the landscape of humanity, that's what stands out to him. Not our muscles, not our looks. And amid all these big, important uh, figures, God saw a little shepherd boy with that kind of heart. Friends, how we need to hear this, right? Man looks at the outward appearance. I wonder what outward appearances you're most tempted to look at and be impressed by. I mean, I think as teenagers, we, uh, we were really impressed with outward things, right? Teenagers here, you know that you're so impressed with people who are good-looking, you know, models on TV, people who, you know, accomplished athletes, Um, people who have powerful careers, who have accomplished and won awards, people who are wealthy, who have the latest gadgets, drive cool cars. As we grow up into adults, we probably think less of those things, but really what we've done is we've just shifted our, the outward things we're impressed by to other categories, right? No, we, we still tend to be those who prize the outward. You know, whatever it is that you admire outwardly, Those are the things that you're going to pursue. Those are the things you're going to try to build your life around. And in many ways, those things are fine. We can talk about that. But what we need to realize here is that even as we might pursue those things, outward appearance is no guaranteed indicator of the condition of one's heart. Those are totally separate things. You know, it's so interesting. These days, Hollywood movies have sort of flipped the script. Instead of showing the hero as the handsome, strong person, now the hero is like the underdog, right? The nerdy, sort of outcast, minority sort of person. And the the villains are the, the handsome, rich people. But even when they do that, when they flip the script, you realize they're still relying on outward appearance. They're still judging by outward appearances. Friends, outward appearance does not determine the condition of one's heart, one way or the other. So my point is not that you shouldn't care about your appearance or that you shouldn't work on your career or your skills, your accomplishments. Again, those things can be fine. But even as you do that, and even as people are impressed with you, 
realize that there is something far more important than these outward things, namely the condition of your heart, right? The inward person. Which means then to encourage you, if you're not someone who is outwardly impressive, and looking at all of us here, we have many of those of us, right? If you, even if you never amount to something by the world's standards, know that there is a God who judges not according to the outward, but according to our hearts. Because even if the world hates you, even if you are rejected by those you admire, even if you are a failure in every worldly category, even then, we can live as those who fear God, as those who love God. And in the end, God, the God of hearts, will bring his reward. I think we're going to be surprised at the final judgment. Perhaps those who will be most rewarded will not be, you know, the pastors and the presidents and the authors of our day. No, it will be little shepherd boys. It'll be that little servant girl. Others who we never knew, but who God knew and who, who showed that they had hearts that trusted in God. As Jesus said, the first will be last. And the last will be first. When we recognize this principle that we are unable to see into our hearts, I think this should make a huge difference in our relationships with one another. Um, as those who recognize we cannot see into each other's hearts, our best posture towards one another is one of charity. We, we should be charitable towards one another. Right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. We, we, we hope for the best in each other. So, yes, your husband left his socks lying around again. Yes, he made a mess and he did not clean it up. Wives, assume that your husbands did not do that out of spite or malevolence. They're not intentionally trying to drive you crazy even though that's what it feels like? Um, maybe he was tired. Maybe he just forgot. But, but it wasn't an intentional attack on you. He wasn't trying to belittle you, even though it, it, it feels that way. So in grace, talk to your husbands about their actions. Patiently help them to see where uh, you're coming from. And, and let God be the judge of their hearts. Husbands, you're welcome for that point of application. And, you know, in the church, I mean, charitableness, right? We, we want to apply this in the church too. I mean, we, people, we're just socially awkward. We don't know what to say. We say the wrong thing. You know, we, we say or do insensitive, insulting things all the time. We live in a society that's sort of hypervigilant about being politically correct you say the wrong thing, you're immediately branded as a racist or a misogynist, and you're canceled. You know, that, that's a terrifying way to live. We don't want to live like that in the church. No, in the church, we want to demonstrate something different. We assume the best motives and intentions of one another, right? And on, out of that basis, we, we do look for ways to correct, you know, things that were said that were hurtful or things that were done that were... Um, unhelpful, and yet we assume the best, right? We assume that it was not malevolent or malicious. You know, brother, what you said was insensitive. I, I know that you didn't mean it that way, 
but here's how those things affected me, right? We, we, we assume the best and we're ready to forgive. We, we do this, we interact this way because we recognize only God sees down to the heart. We can't do it. Uh, and therefore, we leave it to him to be the judge of hearts. And so we assume the best of one another. You know, knowing that there is a God who sees past our outward appearances, that should be terrifying. Um, it, it's easy for me to impress you. It's much harder for me to impress my wife. Uh, because you see me in public. You see me standing up here preaching. You see me like, you know, when I'm on my best behavior. My wife, she sees me in my private behavior, much more annoying. Uh, you know, I've got all my weaknesses and failings. She knows much more what I'm like. She's not impressed with me like, like you are impressed with me. Uh, much harder to impress her. And yet, even then, my wife doesn't know a hundredth or a thousandth of what God knows about me. God knows me down to my heart. He knows my motives. He knows the evils of my heart. He knows my evil thoughts. And that's true for all of us. He sees our hearts. He sees everything about us. Can you imagine one day standing before a judge who knows absolutely everything about you? What is that day going to be like? Not only what you have sort of, sort of portrayed in your public persona, no, but who you are in private, in, in, in your heart, down to the evil motives and lusts and thoughts of your heart. Friends, one day, we will all have to stand before this God and give an account for our lives. There's going to be no place to hide. Which makes what God says here that much more amazing. Because the God of hearts has chosen for himself a king. A king that he approves of. That there is someone that he approves of, even though he's the God who sees past our, appearance, our appearances and sees down to the heart. God has chosen a king for himself. This unknown shepherd boy would go on to become the king of Israel. And God would promise him in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Even after Israel was conquered and exiled out of their homeland for their sins, that hope remained with them that there would be a king that would come, a king chosen by God. And then 2,000 years ago, a boy was born, a boy from the line of this shepherd. He was born in the village of Bethlehem. He was a carpenter's son. He grew up like any Jewish boy out in the little village way in the middle of nowhere called Nazareth. You know, if we had visited Nazareth in those days, we would not have noticed him. He would have just been another little kid out there. The prophet Isaiah says this about him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his, in his appearance that we should desire him. And yet to this very ordinary man, God makes it clear that he is the chosen one. He is the one with whom God is pleased in every way. From his life and his actions down to his heart. When we read the Gospels, there are all these little instances where God 
sort of shines forth and makes clear that, that Jesus is his chosen one. Right? At his baptism, the skies open, the, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. On another occasion, the, the, Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain, and Jesus is glorified before their eyes, and a cloud overshadows them, and a voice declares, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And at the end of his life, when the polit political and religious leaders of the day made clear their rejection of Jesus, they nailed him to the cross. They cursed him. They mangled his body. They tortured him. They put him to death. And yet, once again, God confirms that even that person, even that Jesus is his chosen one by raising him from the dead. Friends, Jesus Christ is the descendant of this shepherd boy. He is God's chosen king. Out of all of humanity, he is the one whom God has looked at down to his heart and has said, this is my beloved son. Uh, this is my chosen king. As the apostle Paul declares, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The day will come when the skies will roll back and Jesus, God's anointed king, will descend and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will bring an end to all the evil and death and rebellion against God. And all who have trusted in him will be saved. And he will rule as king forever. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what Christianity is all about. It's not about keeping up outward appearances. It's not about joining a club, pretending to be someone you're not. No, it's, it's about being honest about the evils of our hearts. It is about confessing to God that our outward appearances, our outward performances cannot save us. And it is fixing your hope on the chosen king, the one God has appointed, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was nailed on the cross for your sins. He was raised to life for your justification. Turn away from your sins. Place your hope in Jesus Christ as your Savior and King. If you have any questions about what that means, I would love to talk to you after the service. Come find me. Talk to someone who is sitting next to you. We would love to help you understand what it means to trust in Jesus as your only Savior. While Samuel has anointed this shepherd king, he has publicly announced God's choice. Now let's see then what this king is going to be like. Point number three. We are afflicted. God sends his spirit-filled king. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, 
And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son, his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Well, we finally learn here in verse 13 that this boy's name is David. And as soon as Samuel anoints him with oil, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David. You know, to be sure, the the spirit's sort of indwelling transformative work must have been at work in David's life even prior to this anointing. Because David's a sinner, like all of us. He's a human, like all of us. And it is only by the Spirit's work that any sinner can come to have a right heart before God. And yet at the same time, in the Old Testament, we see that God's Spirit comes upon certain people at certain points in Israel's history uh, to equip them and then gift them for certain tasks in leading and saving God's people. You know, that's the whole symbolism of the anointing with oil. It's, it's a picture of the Spirit being poured out upon that individual. This is what we saw happening with Saul back in 1 Samuel 11. To be the anointed king of Israel means that you are God's embodied covenant representative, filled with God's Spirit so that you can now, by that Spirit, lead God's people, just the way God himself would lead God's people. And yet now, shockingly, God's Spirit has come to dwell in this shepherd boy. And yet we also see here that in the Old Testament, God's Spirit, in that sort of temporary sense, he could depart. Uh, that, that this wasn't necessarily a permanent gift of the Spirit. So while the Spirit of God comes upon David, the Spirit also departs from Saul. And now in judgment for Saul's sin, God is sending a harmful spirit to torment Saul as a judgment for his rebellion. What what is this harmful spirit? Some translations might say evil spirit. You know, we don't exactly know. It it could be like a demonic spirit. God himself is not evil, but he is sovereign over all the angelic world and the demonic world. He can unleash them as a part of his judgment. It could also be one of God's own angels sent to carry out God's discipline. Either way, we see the result. Saul is tormented. You know, tormented may actually be too light of a word. He is terrified. He is terror-stricken. From what we see of Saul later on in the narrative, he's going to grow increasingly paranoid, fearful, anxious, overwhelmed, Whatever Saul is experiencing, he knows that he has been rejected by the God of the universe. 
And perhaps that is the greatest terror of all. Saul, who betrayed God's commands and refused to live by the Spirit, has now been given over to the spirits of this world. You know, what a reminder this is, that there is no neutral ground when it comes to this life's spiritual warfare. You're either taken by God's Spirit or you're tormented by the spirits of this world. Well, all this sets up David's meeting with Saul. Saul's servants see their king clearly tormented. One of them says, hey, I know this guy, son of Jesse, who can play the liar. He's brave. He's well-spoken and handsome. God is with him. Have him come and play for you. And so Saul sends for him. You know, Jesse sends David with his own provisions. You know, David's not even going to get paid. He's just coming uh, with, with his own provisions to serve at Saul's whim. That's how insignificant he is. But even then, pretty soon we see that the king comes to love him and eventually gives him an, an official position in his court. We're going to read in 1 Samuel 17 how that comes to happen. Uh, and this all sets up David's entrance into public life. So, so here's the closing scene as we come to the end of chapter 16. Notice all the contrasts, right? By outward appearance, if you were to show up in Saul's court, this is what you would see. You would see Saul, the king, sitting on the throne. And you'd see this straggly little shepherd boy coming in from the side. Right? You'd see Saul, mighty warrior, with soldiers all around him. You see David, again, this shepherd, <laughs> carrying his lyre. You'd see Saul issuing commands for his servants. He tells them what to do. So David is just there obeying his father obeying whatever Saul tells him to do. And yet behind all those appearances in Saul's court, we see here the truth. The Lord is with David. The spirit has departed from Saul. David comes bringing refreshment and peace. Saul is a tormented soul. David is the anointed one, God's spirit-filled king who drives away evil spirits. Saul is helpless and is tormented by this harmful spirit. For all who have eyes to see, in Saul's court, the true king is not the one sitting on the throne. The true king is that little boy holding the lyre, following his father's orders. And yet this true king, God's spirit-filled king, is the one that God has sent to bring his people peace. David here is only a glimpse of the true king to come. As Peter declares in Acts 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. David here is just a little foreshadowing of the true king to come, Jesus Christ, anointed with the Holy Spirit, setting captives free who are under the power of the devil. By the power of the Spirit, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered the forces of darkness and brought everlasting peace to all of us who were once tormented by sin and by Satan. And now Jesus' redeeming work continues down to this very day 
as all those who place their trust in him now receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By virtue of our union with Christ, the Spirit-filled King, we too now have the Spirit dwelling in us. And we are being transformed increasingly into the image of Christ. Friends, when we move into the New Testament, what we see is that the indwelling gift of the Spirit is permanent. He will never be taken away. Why is that? It's because we have been united to Christ, the Spirit-filled King. Our assurance that we have God's Spirit permanently is not based on our performance. It's not based on how we feel. It's not based on our circumstances. No, it is based on Christ's perfect righteousness and our being united to Him. And so, despite our failures, despite our sufferings, we can be assured that God is forever with us and that He will never let us go, that the Spirit will always accompany us through whatever we face in this life. Friends, we are the, we're living in the fulfillment of what Moses and all the prophets long to see, God's Spirit dwelling permanently among His people. And that gift is ours, not by virtue of anything in us, but only through our union with the Spirit-filled King. So, again, friends, I ask you, anyone here today who is troubled? Is there anyone here who is tormented by their sins, who is anxious, who is paranoid, who is terrified of the future? You know, Saul's servants suggest that he listens to music to help him, right? And it's a good reminder that we are holistic beings. We can get discouraged and depressed and anxious, and sometimes music can be helpful, right? Uh, exercise can be helpful. Medicines can be helpful. Healthy relationships can be, and friendships can be helpful. You know, we are embodied souls, and our physical bodies play a role in our well-being. But at the end of the day, if you want to know lasting peace, you're only going to find it in Jesus, the Spirit-filled King. The only way you can have access to the Spirit of peace is through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So, whatever troubling of the soul that you are experiencing today, the solution is to go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Cast all of your cares upon him. Spurgeon gives this advice. Often when I call to see a troubled Christian, do you know what he is almost sure to say? Oh, sir, I do not feel this, and I do fear that, and I cannot help thinking the other. That great I is the root of all of our sorrows. What I feel or what I do not feel, that is enough to make anyone miserable. It is a wise plan, then, to say to such a one, Oh, yes, I know that all you say about yourself is only too true. But now let me hear what you have to say about Christ. For the next 24 hours at least, leave off thinking about yourself and think only of Christ. Oh, dear friends, what a change would come over our spirits if we were all to act thus. For when we have done with self and cast all of our care upon Christ, there remains no reason for us to care or trouble or fret. 
Friends, this is how we can know we have the Spirit of God in us. Because the Spirit's work is to point us to Christ. Whatever peace the Spirit brings into our lives, it only comes as we place our hope in the Spirit-filled King. So, what difference would it make in your life if, as Pastor Spurgeon says, in the next 24 hours, instead of thinking all that's wrong with your life, you think only of the goodness of Christ, his love for you, his finished work on the cross on your behalf, his promise to be with you, his promise to, be, to bring you to himself, uh, the fact that he intercedes for you as your sympathetic high priest even now, his promise to return and take you home to be with him forever. Dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. Let these things dominate how you look at your life and the world around you. Friends, here in the year 2022, we of all people know that we are limited by what we can see. We can't see each other's hearts. We can hardly know our own hearts. So how can we know what we need? All the more reason then to trust in the God who sees us and knows us. He is the God who knows exactly what we need. And he has provided what we need in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And even before I lead us in prayer, let's take a moment now to reflect on what we heard. And feel free to respond to what you've heard. Respond to God just in your own words in prayer. And then I'll close this in just a moment. O God, who sees us down to our hearts. O Lord, you judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, Lord, we confess that all of our posturing, all of our outward performance is like filthy rags. They do not hide our nakedness. Lord, we are exposed before you. And Lord, we have nothing with which to commend ourselves. And so, Lord, this morning we look to the king that you have provided, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only pure-hearted one, who even though he hung on the cross rejected by men, he was your chosen servant. And, Lord, you have proved that by raising him from the dead. Oh, Lord, we confess that he alone is our hope. Oh, Lord, help us even this week to fix our thoughts on him, to fix any hope for well-being in him, Lord, that our hope in him would transform us, that we would begin to live lives of wholeness and, and fulfillment and rest. And Lord, that out of that, we would bear witness 
to his saving work. Oh, Lord, give us many opportunities to bear witness to his saving work, to, those, to, a, to a dying and restless world around us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.